0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Howling Coyote. And I'm happy to have Andrea Reed with me tonight. She's um, the principal investigator and founder of the Center for Indigenous Fisheries at the University of British Columbia, and she's a citizen of the Nisca Nation. And I just want to mention that I'm recording from the unceded territory of the Penobscot nation and to acknowledge its elders past, present, and future. So uh Andrea, I'm really excited to talk to you because mostly I talk to health people about two-eyed seeing. And I just think it's so refreshing to talk to someone who, who knows about fish fish. I guess the plural is fish. So um so can you, can you give us an overview of, of sort of how you came into the whole notion of two-eyed seeing and the Center for Indigenous Fisheries and just all of that wonderful stuff?
1: Sure, my pleasure. So I'm I'm joining today from Niska territory, so sitting on the British Columbia-Alaska so-called border. Um, I'm in the village of New Ianch or Gitlak Damics, but I didn't. Grow up in in Niska territory. I was raised far outside of of this place, um, on the opposite side of Canada and was raised in Migmagi, And so it was in part kind of that connection to that community that I came to know about Awapdamak of two-eyed seeing and and had the opportunity to to get to know of and then get to know personally uh Mi'kmaq elder Dr. Albert Marshall, who is uh, a carrier of this teaching, alongside his late wife Merdina. Um, yeah, I'm excited to talk about the application of Edoaptamuk in in fish, in fisheries research and and management, because for so long this has been a discipline really, really dominated by a kind of a westernized approach to to taking care of our, our waters and their inhabitants through approaches that are really command and control and i think this is really an invitation to think about our relationships with with fish and fisheries in in a different way and so it's really in that learning from and with albert that i've gotten to to get to apply this concept this teaching to to my work and is a strong motivator for the creation of the center for indigenous fisheries that that is really predicated on holding up multiple ways of knowing as we come to to work with indigenous partners across British Columbia um, as well as beyond on critical fish and fisheries questions in their territories. This allows us to bring, you know, the best of Western science, if we want to call it that, alongside the the knowledge that emanates from the places that we're working within um, that is so needed as we tackle these really critical concerns for our fish and fisheries.
0: That's really exciting. Um, can you can you tell us about uh, a couple projects that are going on at the center?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, one that I think aligns really well with this conceptualization and has been a guiding principle throughout the work has been a project that was brought to us by the First Nations Fisheries Legacy Fund, which is composed of six First Nations in and around the Vancouver area, um, all Hankaminam-speaking peoples. And they brought to us this idea of adapting the Maori Cultural Health Index to their context. So the Cultural Health Index is this really incredible framework for looking at the health of freshwater systems in Aotearoa in New Zealand um, that brings in not only that suite of Western science approaches to looking at what constitutes healthy waters, things like dissolved oxygen in the water or the temperature or its flow, but could actually bring in Maori knowledge, values, um, understandings into the framing. And so these partners wanted to do just that, but but in their context. And so the first two students to have joined the center, uh, Kate Musset and Casey Sterling, um, they took on this project working with all of these six nations and, and various community members to create a framework that can bring together their knowledge, their values, their understandings alongside a range of of techniques that we use to look at the health of fresh waters from looking at diatoms in the water the little uh, algal beings that that salmon rely on to looking at all of those physical dimensions of of what makes healthy waterways whether that's the the steepness of the banks or the coolness of the water and a lot of the way that that came to that came to be was was with salmon in mind because salmon are so critically important for these nations that we were looking at the health of the water through the lens of what what salmon need and and by virtue what what salmon people need and so this is this is work very much in progress we're uh we've been at it for the past 2 years and we're we're starting to to find our way through this work but in addition to um those ways of measuring the waterscape. um, We're bringing in all of these other dimensions around if the community has access to a waterway as part of what's critical to its health, if they can use that water in in the ways that they've uh, historically done, whether that's for transport or for ceremony, um, whether they're meaningfully involved in its caretaking, whether they have... The ability to exercise their sovereignty in that space. And so um yeah we're excited to to bring this forward and we've been in conversation with a number of other nations wanting to do the same in their territories. And so we're building this up in a way that is a transferable kind of framework, honoring kind of the original intents for the cultural health index itself.
0: Mm, that's really exciting. I know that they that the Maori seem to be moving well into um, into the mainstream, really, I should say, that that, um, that they're really a presence in New Zealand uh, mm-hmm. and have a lot to offer. Um, so you know, I I came across your work through a paper that um, you wrote you published in 2020 um, with a whole bunch of other people. and it was in Fish and Fisheries was the journal. And I was really struck with, with what an excellent description you made of two-eyed seeing. Um, and I, I was thinking maybe um, it would be worth talking about. You, you, in that paper, you talked about um, three projects, the, the Slave River Delta and the Saskatchewan River Delta and then Cape Breton, Nova Scotia. And, and I wondered if, if maybe, maybe Slave River is closest to your heart right now since you're in British Columbia and it's the closest river of the three that we mentioned. But I wondered if you could talk about any of those projects and what happened. Yeah. Um, yeah, so
1: the the way that that paper came together at, with Albert as as the the senior author in the work. Um, you know, we we do a wonderful job of describing the teaching because they're they're very much Albert's words, and so it was through conversation him and I that I was able to to help bring it onto the page in in that way. But it's really honoring all that Albert brings brings forward. And so in that paper, part of the of the necessity for that piece is kind of what you've already pointed out, that there's been more widespread application of Adeweptimuk in, in a variety of other disciplines in, in health and in, in education, but it presence within the realm of so-called natural sciences or within within fisheries specifically really really lags and so we were excited in this work to bring together um, a small number of case studies where its application has been has been transformative to the work itself and so these are are projects that are not my own they are ones that that we look we turn to to draw out lessons from and the third that you just made mention the one that takes place uh, on Unamagi that is is led by by colleagues uh, in the Unama'gi Institute of Natural Resources on on Cape Breton Island in in Nova Scotia, and UINR. They really bring forward Edoepdemuk as as a guiding principle in in all the projects that they undertake. So this is one example of quite a long list of really powerful ones that have allowed them to, to bring forward that gift of multiple perspectives into their work. Um, I'm really endlessly impressed by the projects that they undertake where they're partnering really effectively with government agencies, with universities, um, with their own kind of partnership tenants, guiding the way that they undertake the work and, it's really transformed, I think, what they've been able to do for salmon, Atlantic salmon, for eels, uh, and a number of other species in their waters. Um, I could go on about the, the different case studies that figure into that paper, but I guess what I, I might just turn my gaze to, to focus more specifically on, on my nation's context. And while we might not have you know the practice and and the name of of two-eyed seeing here, it's certainly embodied in a lot of what we do in our in our fish and fisheries care, and that was really one of the main messages for the paper is that we we drew together these examples of uh, of frameworks for allowing epistemic pluralism from across many indigenous cultures. Our, our call to action here is not that everyone take and adopt two-eyed seeing to I'd see their context, because in many contexts it's not the right teaching to be bringing into the work. In many cases it it ought to be teachings that come from the place where the work is is happening. And so here in NISCA territory, to my knowledge we don't have a, a conceptualization that, that parallels in that same way, but if I look at our NISCA fisheries and wildlife department and the way that over the past three decades they've been running a really leading edge Im- amazing fisheries program centered specifically on salmon using traditional fishing technologies like fish wheels and and weirs to monitor the fish paired with a variety of you know western science techniques to understand the fish better and what's happening with them whether that's taking small fin clips so that they can identify the genetic stock of origin of of the fish that are being captured um, to using different tags to monitor where these fish go and and how they're faring. And fish in the Nass River, while they are certainly affected by by climate change, by industrial development, by the range of, of threats that are endangering our waterways worldwide, we do see that they are they're doing well and that that reality that they're doing reasonably well amidst this time of great change to me is a reflection of the good care that's gone into to monitoring them but that monitoring hasn't always looked like this for for generations upon generations we've had traditional areas that are linked to specific chiefs and their families organized into into houses, wilps, and, and clans within this territory. And it's up to those individuals to look after those places. And so much has gone into really active on the land, on the water care that it's just really clear to me that my and our ancestors were absolutely scientists in their own right reading the water knowing what's best to to keep these fish going because our our mutual survival is is really interdependent it's really interlinked
0: yeah and when you think about it i mean the tendency of of whatever we want to call sort of late capitalist fishing um the tendency to just fish out everything until there's nothing left is 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 kind of insane. I mean who who thought of such a crazy idea? I mean, do, do you have any idea how they got to that place of of overfishing to extinction?
1: Yeah, well if you look at you know some of the early documents in the in the Canadian context, the The Canadian Constitution um, and the the original kind of confederation of Canada was hand in hand with the Indian Act and and the Fisheries Act here. And there's language contained within those documents that are really clear about colonial perspectives of, of indigenous fisheries and how they are to be constrained and and bound. And there are some pretty powerful quotes from leaders at the time talking about indigenous fishing activities, not in a rights-based context, but as an act of grace that that the colonial government is is allowing this to take place. And we really see that that kind of paternalism carried to this day. But a lot of those earliest colonizers and, and settlers described seeing the waters here as just an endless sea of of creatures with no end in sight and I think that really led to this idea that it's inexhaustible and that we can take and take and take without there being really real repercussions for those actions and I think Underlying all of that is that assumption of of terra nullius, if they're arriving thinking that there aren't people here, there aren't active caretakers who have led to that reality of there being such an abundance, they're getting here thinking that that is just the default state when really we know that our forests have been managed through fire, our Clams have been managed through gardening. We have taken care of these spaces in really real ways that have led to those previous states of abundance that have been obliterated across a lot of the province of British Columbia and beyond. But I think fisheries around the world really show, when we look at like large-scale industrial fisheries, so many are managed based on looking at just a single species, not thinking about the the broader scale (laughs) impacts that um, taking as much as we possibly can is gonna have these cascading impacts. I think more and more we're seeing these calls to shift towards ecosystem-based management, multi-species management, but we were already there once and we've, we've shifted so far from that in these waters. And I think that really leads to to this place where we identify what what we call maximum sustainable yield, identify the tipping point that, that if we go beyond that, we're going to endanger these fish. And so we manage up to that very precarious level. That to me does not reflect a, a precautionary approach to, to looking after our fish. And it flies in the face of a lot of the ethics that that I hear from from my elders and, and knowledge keepers in my territory and in neighboring territories that we don't take more than we need and we keep what we catch and we respect these fish for the beings that they are.
0: Yeah, and in your paper, you wrote, Mima um, eel fisheries were found to be underpinned by the values of kinship, relationality, generosity, and then Olymk, Limp- Whereas the governmental approach to eel fisheries was found to be governed by a Western scientific worldview that instead prioritizes process, compartmentalization, economic benefits, and conservation. And I thought that was a beautiful sentence, you know, to to compare and contrast the different worldviews. And, And I'd heard also, I wondered if you, I'd heard that the MIMA were um sort of reinvigorating oyster fishery in nova scotia you know with with um their their indigenous wisdom about oysters and i i wondered i know this is sort of a field but i wondered if you'd heard about that
1: i've heard about it broadly but i don't i don't know a lot of the specifics i know that there is a lot of activity happening across Migrmagi to bring back sovereignty over over fisheries, and we're seeing that play out in a in a variety of ways in relation to the American lobster fishery. Um, but when it comes to to oysters, I know that that's been a, a fairly widespread interest, but um, I can't really speak to the specifics, and would strongly encourage you to get in touch with some folks on that coast to, to learn more. And I mentioned UINR who are uh, kind of showcased within the paper. Um, Dr. Shelley Denny is one of the, one of the leading biologists there and a wonderful person to connect with.
0: Yeah, that would be really interesting. And, and um, you know, here, here in Maine, of course, um, there was the devastation of the, Atlantic salmon by the the dams that were put up on the Penobscot River to um, mostly for paper mills, um, and there has been some turnaround. You know, some of the dams have been taken down, and and um, opportunities have been created for the fish to get around the dams, and uh, I think we've gone from. 25 Atlantic salmon to over a thousand the last time I read about it. But, um, you know, it, it, I guess it's just another example of, of thinking about fishing as business or business as more important than fishing, um, you know, to construct all these dams. And, and it's taken a lot of effort to get them unconstructed, um, I'm sure you, you probably know of other examples of that from, yeah. from your territory.
1: Across across the coast on on this west coast of the continent or east coast of the Pacific, it's uh, pretty widespread how much, if you look at the Columbia River, the amount of dams that, that really block the movement of, of Salmon upstream. Similarly, there's active conversations and, and actions now that are centered on either dam removal or adaptation to include thoughts around passage, which hadn't really been enabled for many of them previously. And so it's great to see those, those shifts starting to happen. And there's good evidence to show that dam removal is a really promising avenue that that rivers can really in many ways bounce back and it can be a means to to restore the 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 earlier state of a waterway it's never going to look the same but rivers are you know they're innately shifting beings They're you can never step in the same river twice as i'm often told and um I think that's that's wonderful that we're starting to see those changes but we really need to be cognizant of the cost of some of these ways of sourcing our energy or our our water we often talk in in Canada about hydropower as a green energy but hydropower in so many circumstances here has has come at the cost of flooding vast tracts of indigenous lands and and waters and i know many communities who've been directly devastated or or cut off from their their fishery at the hands of this with you know specific examples of people getting notices left on their door that in a month or two's time this whole area is going to be flooded and in the 60s in in bc that led to certain community members getting paid something like 10 to 15 dollars per head in the household to move them somewhere else so like an entire it's hard to conceive that that was a reality and and often still is a reality that people get displaced without any thought
0: yeah, I read some about Hydro-Quebec um, doing things like that in times past. And it seemed like their assumption was no one was watching so they could do anything they wished. and,
1: yeah, um, and again, that no one is there or few people are there or right. only certain kinds of people are there.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, um, can do you can you give us an example of of a um, conventional fisheries management strategy that was not working, um, besides overfishing, and um, how a an indigenous approach uh, was able to turn things around. Mm-hmm.
1: I wish that there were more examples of that. Um, I think that there there are certainly lots of examples where indigenous understandings have kind of flipped Western scientific understandings on their head in in a variety of fishing contexts or already established things that Western science then comes and, you know, so-called discovers. And there are great examples of that surrounding um, kind of the the levels by which we define biodiversity. There's, because, you know, we exist on localized scales often, not always, obviously we're talking about a range of indigenous peoples, contexts, cultures. It's it's not a monolith, but often because we're talking about place-based understandings, It so often is the case that indigenous conceptualizations of the kind of unit of biodiversity that they're concerned about is more specific than that of Western science, that instead of thinking about beings on, say, a species level, or even on a population level, and in biology, we think of many populations making up a species, within our contexts, we see many groups that are concerned with plants and animals on a subpopulation level, and I think that really is transformative to to what we're concerned about and the decisions that that we make. Because if we zoom out on that scale of how is the species doing as at a whole as a whole, sometimes that can be informative, but sometimes that misses really important variations that exist within a group. Um, Often subpopulations or ecotypes can emerge that are responding to different things in the environment. And so they require kind of different considerations in their treatment. And I think that really, we see that um, kind of again and again, when we look at fishing as, as business, when we look at fishing as solely a source of of economic opportunity rather than fishing as certainly economics, but also social, cultural, ecological well-being. Um, We see approaches that emerge that really paint with a a very wide brush where we apply approaches that really neglect place-based understandings. And we have coast-wide management approaches that don't allow us to be context specific. And so I think there we find a real power in indigenous forms of, of fishing and governance and management. And a great example here on the West coast is around our traditional fishing technologies where through colonization and through the Fisheries Act, that very specifically constrained indigenous fishing to enable large scale, non-indigenous commercial fishing opportunity in marine waters. And the original Fisheries Act was very specific about having no freshwater fishing by net, effectively saying no indigenous fishing in in many of our waters. And that, that shift led to a circumstance where so much fishing activity was happening out on the ocean, where all of the salmon or all the different kinds of ecotypes, populations, species, they're all intermixed. They're all co-migrating together in those waters. But when we look at indigenous fishing approaches, which have principally occurred upstream, when the salmon all peel off into their natal rivers and streams and and, and watersheds, they're finding their way home and we're getting less of that intermingling but everybody's kind of splitting apart and so then we can tailor our fishing activities to to focus on species or populations or 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 subpopulations that are doing really well and leaving those that are that that need better care we can leave them alone but also the the management or the fishing approaches the gears themselves are inherently really selective they allow us to make choices as we As we fish, we can make the choice to to release all the females, to enable more females to get to spawning grounds and carry the population forward. And recent science has shown that, you know, ancient middens are, are overrepresented by male salmon. And that's not a shocking revelation. That is. Still in practice today, that we're going to harvest the males more often than the females because that's a it's a smart ecological choice to be making. And so I find that the 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 deeper we dig in terms of every fishing decision, it really is guided by those those broader ethics of how we take only what we need and how we think about not just our generation now, but those past and and those future that are so tightly bound up in what happens with these fish.
0: Yeah, and I I, may have, I may be misunderstanding this, but I recently heard something about um, that some indigenous people have come to an understanding of how to relate to invasive species in their habitat in a beneficial way and am i understanding that correctly is that something or did i get it wrong
1: no no i think i think that there's growing conversation about when we think about invasives and if we even just stop and think about that word that really feels in many ways like a a value judgment of what we think of those plants or animals i think what i hear happening in a lot of different first nations and tribal community contexts is an emphasis on thinking about what what has led to that circumstance like what what are the root causes that have enabled species to move in these new and you know kind of unprecedented ways and instead of placing the blame on those plants and animals themselves, we need to look at the mechanisms that that led to that and address our attentions there. And that's not always possible for sure. Um, But I think it's just an invitation to think about our relationships with these organisms in a different way. And um, just yesterday I was in a workshop that members of my team were, were leading centered on, sea lamprey in the great lakes which are a major invasive species and in that workshop it was raised as a point of discussion around like maybe there are ways of kind of collaborating (laughs) with these invaders many people in this context are really concerned about their numbers to be sure because as sea lamprey spread the risk to, to native populations grows and grows and so clearly everybody wants to be doing something about that but the reality is that so many of the approaches to their control have been at the hands of decision makers who do not consult, or or better yet, get consent from the nations and tribes who, whose lands and waters this is taking place on. And so that can include putting in barriers on, on waterways, which has impacts to all kinds of beings in those waters, to 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 applying chemicals that affect both the invasive lamprey, but also the native endangered lamprey and, and perhaps other species in the water as well. And so there's just, it's it's wrapped up in quite a lot of complexity and, and nuance, but in that workshop it was raised how we might collaborate with sea lamprey that they, um, it's known that they tend to concentrate some heavy metals and contaminants in the water in their bodies and so as they move through these systems and they're they're parasitic creatures they're feeding on other fish and they're concentrating these things that we don't want in the water in their bodies maybe we can work with them by removing them from the system thereby removing these harmful uh kind of entities contaminants from the water by kind of using the the existence of these fish to our collective advantage. Well, but I think it's a, it's a challenging ahead. topic. And I, and I would not say that all nations feel the same about any of this. It's going to depend on the, the context of what invasive and what's our relationship with, with that plant or animal. And that's true of non-Indigenous people as well. And we see that reflected in the language choices that we make around those beings where Pacific salmon that are Put into the Great Lakes instead of being called introduced or invasive, they're they're often just termed stocked, which sounds a lot less frightening to to people hearing those words, right? A stocked fish versus an invasive one.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, you you make me think about sort of the, sort of the the conventional mainstream approach to a problem is to is to kill it kill something, you know, let's let's poison the invading sea lampreys and or kill them. And it's interesting because the the indigenous approach is so how do we relate to these creatures? Like how can we form a relationship that's even potentially mutually beneficial? And and so is there another way to deal with them besides just poisoning them? Or killing them, am I, am I getting it right? Does that make yeah,
1: sense? Yeah, absolutely. And for those that that want to dig deeper into, into these conversations, there's a growing amount of discussion on this in the published literature. And uh, Dr. Nicholas Rio at at Dartmouth has done some wonderful work from the Sault Ste. Marie Tribe of Chippewa Indians. Um, Nick's work interrogates just these questions in a few specific communities community partnered context. And so I'd invite folks to, to go take a look at that.
0: Yeah, and there's also um a really I thought interesting paper you wrote with with a, a bunch of other people, um Emerging Threats and Persistent Conservation Challenges for Freshwater Biodiversity, which was biological reviews in 2019. And um you know, as someone who's naive to this field, it was it was very educational for me. And I think the the really frightening thing was um, the figure one in the paper shows the the incredible drop in diversity of freshwater species over time. And um, wow, that I found that threatening. I mean, scary.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, fresh waters have been so overlooked, and it uh, they don't get near enough attention. And you know, when we think about aquatic conservation, we get a lot of interest and attraction towards our oceans, which is great. But we also have <laughs> fresh waters across this continent and around the world that are that are deeply endangered without without much notice.
0: Yeah, and um, I remember um, a friend of my wife's was working on a a research project on Lake Winnipeg, and um, looking at um each sort of layer of the lake, and what was happening at the various levels of the lake, and it it's sort of beyond my lake knowledge to know all the ins and outs of that. But sadly, uh Stephen Harper just completely shut it down. It had been going for, I think, 20 years, you know, to gain this better understanding of, of what's happening in lakes like Lake Winnipeg. And it and the whole thing just disappeared, which um was really sad.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we see that with the the experimental lakes area that that was a one of the world's longest standing um study areas for limnology the the study of of these kinds of waters and yeah gutted pretty well over overnight and then now now relying on other sources of of funding but it it was completely shut down for a time um to my knowledge it's now operational again, but with support sourced uh, elsewhere. And I think in a really different kind of way than than prior to that government.
0: Mm. Well, it's good to hear that it's, that it's making a comeback.
1: Yeah, I think due to a lot of efforts on the part of, of certain researchers who've really wanted to, to see it continue. I mean, it's because of the experimental lakes area that we know a lot about what Nutrient loading into lakes does to them, and that has huge policy implications for how agricultural lands operate in and around our waters.
0: Right, right. Well, and, and it's sort of of interest. My my wife's nephew is also at UBC, and he works in water, and he just published a paper on um, something that interests you, which is the distribution of engineered nanomaterials in in i think rivers and lakes you know in in british columbia and you know it wasn't even anything that i'd ever thought of before reading his paper and reading your paper and what what do we need what do i need to worry about <laughs> what else do i need to worry about besides or or maybe in addition to nanomaterials i know that i know there's a and maybe you've read about this there's a crisis going on in france on its ocean coasts um with micro styrofoam um material that that um i guess that would be microplastic pollution wouldn't it
1: yeah yeah
0: yeah Yeah,
1: I mean, I think that there, the reality is that there's many things that we can be concerned about in our waters and what we need to do collectively is recognize that all water is connected and that what we do in one place has, has repercussions elsewhere and that makes water a really challenging study area because it's It's fluid and it's dynamic and it's often out of sight. We only see its surface. And that means that there's a lot that can be at play that we don't necessarily know about. And so I think widely, we need to recognize that we ought to be respecting our waters deeply because of that. And we need to, in the same way that we've already been discussing, think about our Our responsibility to to our for our actions and and thinking about what role we have to play in in its care. Um, I've been reading uh, Dr. Max Liberon's book, uh, "Pollution is Colonialism," which is a deep dive into the the world of, of plastics and even just the idea. Behind pollution and identifying kind of like health thresholds, I'm really marked by Max's work in this space. That so much of the Western science approach to characterizing health is to identify some threshold. That if we exceed that threshold, then we're in you know in a scary place for generally for people. Is the the lens that we carried there. but that kind of has this baseline assumption within it that it's okay then to pollute up to that level and that it's okay that we have these large scale impacts. And I think it's kind of akin to that precarious maximum sustainable yield I was talking about before. Um, yeah, I think Max's work in this space is is really insightful for, for thinking about our relationship to, to plastics and they're very careful to always talk about plastics in the plural form because not all plastics are are the same in terms of their repercussions or even why they they're used and that book brings forward a lot of important nuance of you know plastic use and generation for medical purposes
0: Yeah, and I think
1: we can think about that in a really different light than we might use. Think of it as straws in, in someone's Coca Cola or whatever it might be. That's a really different use of plastic and a really different kind of implication. Um, when we when we say we need to ban plastics, that's not a unilateral solution to all problems.
0: Well, and I think with COVID, it's gotten incredibly worse. At least I observed that in the hospital. That that everything is everything comes to us in a plastic bag. Right. Yeah. And I don't know when that'll stop. but yeah, so we're getting close to the end. And, um, I wanted to thank you for, for coming onto the podcast and it seems like really important stuff. And I imagine it's as hard in the fisheries world as it is in medicine to change the status quo. Um, and, uh, you guys, do you guys, anything else you want to leave us with in terms of websites or resources or further um, things people can read or look at?
1: Sure. Well, thanks so much for, for having me on. And I really enjoyed our, our conversation today. Um, I think just thinking about your last question about concerns, I think what we what we all need to do is spend time on the land, spend time on the water, be connected to it and know it and care about it. And I think that's gonna lead to a lot of positive things for for these waters and and their inhabitants. Um, In the Center for Indigenous Fisheries, we spend a lot of time focused on youth-centered efforts. And so I just wanted to to share briefly that I, I really think that the more we can engage Young minds in work of this nature, the more transformative I think it can be, in terms of bringing in new ideas, new ways of understanding and and being on on the water. Um, and it's and that's really like the future that I want to work towards. I lead uh, youth camps in in my territory, focused on fish and fish science, and so. We spend time on the water, finding oolican, finding salmon, going and seeing how they're prepared, learning from, from elders and knowledge keepers here, eating these fish and engaging with them in, in all ways that we can, creating art about them. And I think uh, that that, to me, is a real embodiment of of the two-eyed seeing at teaching of how we bring together ways of, of knowing and coming to understand our fish and, and associated fisheries. So um, I just wanted to share that because that's something I'm deeply committed to. But thank you, Lewis, for for hosting me. And thanks, everyone, for listening.
0: Thank you. Thank you.